Oh, this, this is how we're doing that. Welcome back. Yeah, we're, going we're, not right having, into it. we're not having an intro. No, we're just doing it. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm breaking think, all the norms, Mario. Do you think our listeners are like, what the fuck? I hope oh. they do. I hope all of our consistent listeners are like, I'm not doing it anymore. Well, guys, the new beer we're drinking for this week is All In by Druthers. Um, but also, at some point, I'll be probably going downstairs to get another Sea Hag. Is that side drinking? If you want to hear a review of Sea Hag, uh, that's the, the episode C-Hag, is called the Sea Hag episode. episode. Yeah. But my follow up review. I've changed my opinion quite a bit. Is it still the best beer in Southern Connecticut? Yeah, I know you think that. I think the Hoppenweiss is really kind of going. Oh, I it is over. I, I feel like it's overtaking. People. I am convincing. It's delicious. I'm, I'm an IPA guy. It's delicious. Mm-hmm. So the Hoppen, wait, the Hoppenweiss? You yeah. mean the Hoppen Hoppen Lager? Hoppen Lager, yeah. Yeah, the Hoppen, Hoppen I like. I haven't like. I don't know what you're talking about. Hoppen Lager is really good, but like. No, yeah, that's we're, that's probably my number two. We're talking more about East Rock Brewing every week. We just get deeper and deeper. East, East Rock, Rock Brewing, Brewing presents Pivotal Film. I mean, guys, if you want to. <laughs> yeah, we're totally willing to go down that rabbit hole. We will be paid in uh, just a beer called Pivotal. Pivotal Lager. Yeah. It goes. Not even money. Just, just the beer name. It's a, it's a sweat goes. Sour. But what fruit would we want? Clementine. Ooh, a Clementine goes. I like it. I like it. I think I'm trying to think of something. Or something that go, or maybe not a, maybe not a goes. Well, all right. So if we're going goes, I like well, the Clementine. Let's go the ghost series. We're gonna go the ghost series. But if not, we've, we've loved the ghost series. I would like them to integrate pear somehow. Pear. I don't know how. You lost me. How do you do pear? I want citrus. I, I want a citric. I want a bite, you know, nice little bite to the goes because the goes is usually... No, no, but if you don't do the goes, if you do something else, how do oh. I get a pear in there? I don't know. I like a juicy pear. Do you like a juicy pear? No, not really. I don't like pears. You don't like pears? No, I'm, I'm a nectarine guy. Yeah, nectarines are good, but I like a juicy pear. Oh. Well, I guess we'll have two different pivotal beers. Pivotal fruits. That's the next, that's the next podcast we do. <laughs> oh, God. You, think you, know what, you, would ha- you know what happened is like we'd go up from our, our current listener count to like a millions. We're just on what, WTF. That's always how we're it just happens. on WTF. We're just like, yeah, we we care about movies, but we're stuck talking about fruits. <laughs> we get instantly added to every NPR station in America. We're just like, here's a new jackfruit recipe. <laughs> All right, part uh, two, it's, episode it's been, fifty. It's been a week since you guys heard us yep. without an atro. Atro. This is really messing you up, isn't it? Yeah, it's fucking me up, man. <laughs> I'm ready to talk about a beer, and I just keep holding No, our, we're just drinking the same beer. All in. But we did luckily see an A-block movie. Yeah, we and did. there's only a B-block. There's no C-block this time. No. The C-block will just be our outro, because we'll give you an outro this week. <laughs> if last week you ended the podcast, and you're like, oh, man, I really want to tweet at these guys. I don't think anyone's going to feel that way. Just one person. One person. That's all new, it takes. One new listener was like, these Fucking cock. I want an appropriate outro. These cocks with their once upon a time in Hollywood opinion of it's a good movie but not that great. Or I need to express this to them. You know what's funny about that conversation that we had, which I'm sure is going to get a huge reaction, is going to really bump us into the stratosphere of entertainment commenters. Um, we really we'll gain we're four like, subscribers. We are the two people I think in the world who have. Uh, two people, a, the only two people. A mixed, like a mixed opinion to the point that like we aren't really sure how we feel about it. And, and to the point, and to the point where like 
when it comes to the controversy, we're just like, yeah, we don't care. Yeah, none of those things are real, and it's a good movie. It's not a great movie. It does weird things. I mean, I'm we, not we 100% sure. We weren't friends with Bruce Lee, so yeah, dream we, sequences starring Bruce Lee we don't have opinions on. But this movie... That Which is basically a dream sequence. Yeah, but this movie that we're going to talk about seems to have a pretty... It seemed to have a fairly unanimous... Not unanimous, but like it had a positive Rotten Tomato score. Oh, um, yeah. People liked it. Won a couple of awards at film festivals. A lot of a lot of people did not give it a chance after its first twenty minutes and just kind of walked on out. Which I get. We you yeah, know, we'll talk yeah, about. Yeah, no, it. I, I definitely looked away from this one. We will talk about that when we talk about the movie. And this movie. is this is definitely a film where I looked at the MPAA and I was like, oh, I don't. You guys did I don't know wrong. about this one, guys. <laughs> you guys might have. You guys might have wanted to. Comparing this to the house that Jack built, uh, it's kind of like, what's the difference? Uh, besides yeah, on-screen violence, minutes, yeah. besides like actual on-screen like brutality, a sure house that Jack built, but in terms of like weight, yeah, I mean we talked about this a little bit. Last I didn't look, week. A- I we- didn't look away from house that Jack built, except for for the breast cutting scene. That's the only time I looked away too. I looked away. You, you saw me look at you several times. Yeah, and we commented, us, we commented on it right it, afterwards. Yeah. Uh, uh, the movie we're talking about, if you haven't guessed, and that was a game that we were playing that we didn't tell you about, is uh, The Night. Oh, The Angel Has Fallen. <laughs> and it's just Gerard Butler. <laughs> you were talking about. I uh, know, uh, The Nightingale. I wish I were on yonder hill. We don't want no trouble. That's just the way, isn't it? You don't want trouble, but sometimes trouble wants you. Get me to the soldiers that came by this morning. It's too dangerous. Up north, they kill us. You sure you want to follow him? Claire? A 21-year-old Irish woman who has been convicted of a crime uh, we're led to believe to the extent that it is robbery, just for... Call her a thief a lot. Thief, yeah. So I would assume her crime is surviving, mm-hmm. uh, has been sent to Tasmania um, in the early 1800s and put into the employ of Hawkins, a left tenant in the uh, British Army who is cleaning up Tasmania from the blacks to make it appropriate for the colonialization of the British people. Um, She is joined by her husband and her newborn child um, as they attempt to retrieve their papers so that they may leave Tasmania and presumably return back to Ireland mm-hmm. where or just make a life for themselves yeah, where yeah. Ireland you know during the early 1800s Ireland and England were having tremendously great relationships mm-hmm. uh, the Protestant Catholic Very positive, rule yeah, yeah there wasn't wasn't a bunch of Irish people starting to flee to America to create Tammany Hall nope I wish there was more movies about Tammany Hall I don't think they know how to do it Pivotal Film presents Tammy our first Hall. our first movie it's a three hour epic Lots of interior can, shots of people can, going, yeah! We can fucking do it. I can fuck. we can fucking do it. <laughs> It'll lead to my, my nonsense Roscoe Conkling's conspiracy theory that killed Garfield. Who's directing it? You? 
We'll write it together. You direct it. No, no, I, I'm not going to direct it. We'll give it to... Uh, we'll give it to David Robert Mitchum. Mitchell. Why don't I say Robert Mitchum? <laughs> we'll give it to okay. Robert Mitchum. It will rest in production hell forever because we'll he's dead. Um, she's wishing to get back to Ireland. Um, she has a quite astounding voice and a quite astounding physical presence uh-huh. that has attracted the British soldiers, um, especially Hawkins, the officer in which I as aforementioned said was in her employ. Hawkins uh, routinely and graphically on screen rapes her um, to establish her dominance and says that he will give his papers back He'll give the papers the release ticket, as it is called, mm-hmm. to her when he is ready. Um, at the same time, he is looking to move upwards to the more established towns in Tasmania to take on a captain position. But his basic being a gigantic, huge, humongous, inhuman piece of shit. Because holy shit, is this guy like the biggest villain in possibly film history yeah. in every way in which he's presented, uh, has prevented his ability to get a captain spot. Mm-hmm. Um, he refuses to give Claire and her husband the ticket home. He is accosted uh, by the husband, leading to um, the captain having made his final decision not to give him the go-ahead to be promoted. Um, in a drunken rage, he bursts into Clara's house, um, murders her husband, his subordinate in an attempt to quiet a baby, bashes on screen the baby's head against uh Well, he just wall. throws the baby at the wall. Yeah. He doesn't throw. He, a he lunges the baby. He just and kind there's of was a like, nice, yeah. and There's a very solid... I don't want to say nice. There's a very solid crack of that baby's neck. I'm glad we've entered this new phase, and you can include mother in this as well, where we're pretty okay <laughs> with screen infanticide. Listen, you know, that's Craig Zoller in... As I said also uh, off-air, in Puppet Master Little Strike, where it finally proved to me that S. Craig Zoller may just be a right-wing psychopath, (laughs) uh, decided to have a Jewish um, puppet rip an unborn child out of a mother's womb and show it to the mother. I realized, like, oh, oh, okay, this is where we are in film. We're there. Oh, yeah, don't watch Puppet Master Little Strike. It's fucking (laughs) awful garbage. For, like, all the right reasons. Um, By right reasons, I mean, like, morally and from a filmmaking perspective. Thomas Lennon, you can do better. Thomas Lennon, you have a role in our Tammany Hill film. No. Tammany Hall. We'll take him. We'll take him. Yeah. Not the lead. Not not the lead. Not the lead. Don't continue to yourself. John C. Riley's got the lead. He's got the lead. We'll talk. And proceed to gang rape her as well, because this film is not bereft in its... Um, graphic on-screen rapes. Uh, he then leaves with his subordinates to cross the Tasmanian wilderness uh, in order to get to um, in order to to present his case for his mm-hmm. captainship before um, his leading officer gets there. Uh, Claire, meanwhile, follows with um, a Aboriginal guide of her own uh, across the same wilderness in order to exact revenge. Um, Meanwhile, she deals with a lot of her own 
internalized racism that she <laughs> explicates heavily on screen by being a very outward racist. Mm-hmm. Um, and it comes to... I don't even want to say realize her own sense of racism, comes to humanitize herself a bit, uh, has her and her guide, uh, Billy, realize that they have a a very common enemy, um, even though one of them in the end has a little bit more of an authentic, in my opinion, the declaration of that villainy. Well, it's actually, I would argue that it's probably less complicated for him it's more complicated for the irish because it's not just like we're coming into your country and we're going to kill you and then you're going to do what we say and or you're going to leave but more likely you're going to die yeah like the irish didn't they were killing people but not to the extent they weren't committing genocide you know what i mean yeah and this is so this is jennifer kent's sophomore feature following um her 2014 breakout uh post-traumatic stress feature the babadook which is a horror movie in quotation marks really just more of a uh, drama spooky spooky but but definitely much more of a drama dealing with um the fact of a a, a woman being denied her grief it was better uh, than hereditary oh yeah well come on but it was doing trying to do the same things it didn't do that cop-out switch to like now we're inaugurating a new devil like, the Baba Duke is actually telling a character-driven narrative yeah. that has moral importance on the real world, whereas Hereditary has a, a pretty decent Tony Collette performance on top of the fact that Ari Oster has watched a lot of 1970s horror movies and was like, I can do that with a bigger budget. <laughs> um, it is also the sophomore follow-up of uh, Damon Herriman's I'm an Evil Piece of Shit, uh, run of films after his uh, Charles Manson, but all and, he does is wave in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, yeah, he but, doesn't do anything. Yeah, but now he's in the second season of Mindhunter. Yep, as Charles Manson, which I haven't watched, but I've heard good things heard good about things, Damon yeah. Herriman being Charles Manson, mm-hmm. and I will subject myself. And he's uh, very good in this. He's all oh, Damon Herriman's always good. Yeah. Once again, going back to the Justified, his his Dewey, his Dewey's a pretty great character. Mm-hmm. I didn't even realize that that actor's Australian. I didn't either. Yeah. yeah. He doesn't even seem Australian in this. No, he does not. But he's Australian. Hmm. Um, I'm always surprised to find out who's Australian and who isn't. So, but continue. Well, my, my, my continuing thoughts, Sam Cloffin, who plays, uh, you know, Hawkins, Hawkins is, is not. He's, he's British. I, I could have guessed he was British. Yeah, he's terrible. Just like the British. The um, thoughts. Thoughts. Um, yeah, I had the same problem that you did with the first 20 minutes of the movie. I think I whispered... And, and problem in the sense, in, in a quotative sense. Um, well, so I mean, I said to you when we were watching it, I was like, I hope... I was like, I, I don't like it when I have to go online later and do research to find out what the director was intending when she decided to have two very graphic rape scenes within 10 minutes of each other. And then on, you can put on the, the capper on that is then we're an throwing, hour later. We're throwing babies at a wall, no. and then an hour later, another, another woman is getting raped. Another graphic rape sequence. Um, I, I think it uh, earns it. I think it's, uh, by the end of the movie, I'm. I'm. Um, it earns it. Comfortable is, is, is with a its, weird way of everything. It, there's but. no other way to describe this other than weird. I'm comfortable with the role that it's supposed to be playing 
within the movie. She is not just um, angered, you know, like she's not perturbed into murder um, as I think a lot of like revenge fantasy movies are. She is um, raped into a post-traumatic stress disorder that is um, endlessly profound and it will affect her life forever, um, which is kind of the subtext of the movie is that she's not just she's not an avenging angel she is a ruined she's a ruined person and and i think i think um if people have any kind of hesitancy on watching this uh following kind of like the controversy that like kind of spurned this film um well yeah people walked out uh i think jennifer kent just handles issues like issues that are kind of like neglected with women and i say this as a white male so you know, always a little asterisk. I always like to say the asterisk. Yeah, yeah. Um, a white man. A white man? White male? I don't really know the proper term of saying that. Um, but she handled, you know, the issues that are kind of neglected with, with grief in the Babadook for women, especially women who are mothers, so delicately and, and so well. Um, well and, think- and she does it again here, that she deals with issues that are profoundly, to me, human. Um, well, you had a re- profoundly human response and you to, were reading to the moment. The Guardian review, um, which just came out, which we can you can read a little bit of it or whatever part is relevant to this comment or whatever other comments you want to make. And it kind of got me thinking about the fact that I don't think I think she's kind of doing the same a little bit of the same thing that she's doing with the Babadook. I think she is, um, but I think she's taking it a step further. So I think she's drawing a parallel to the endemic racism um, inherent in. Uh, like colonizing a people and, and committing genocide and trying to wipe a bunch of people out with the kind of endemic um, sexism and misogyny that women have been kind of dealing with like forever. Like, like you're still, there's, there's yeah. no difference really between like something that's happening to somebody, unfortunately, literally right now and what Hawkins did declare in that movie um, or what um, Hawkins and um, Ruse do to that, aboriginal woman that they pick up you know what i mean like well, it's a to, declaration of it's it's a declaration of power um man over woman white over black um that is still prevalent in today's society that hasn't gone that has gone unchecked that has gone unconsidered um that is uh, still in a process of kind of eating away at the moral fabric of our of our society um, and you can write, you can make all the Boz Lerman films about Australia that you want. Um, Australia and its surrounding environs is a is a problem. It is a and, it is a it is a problem nation on a lot of levels. Robert Hughes will tell you all about it. And and so the, the, we're, we're talking about the Garden Review, and this is a, a Larissa Brenhart. Um, and, and she she gives it a she gives it a four out five star review. I mean, ultimately, she says. Uh, you know, in the end, there's no way to escape your own complicity when you're part of the colonial system. She's talking about how it ends on, on kind of like the Gaelic singing. Mm-hmm. Um, no matter how powerless you yourself are, that is a notable aspect of colonialization, and credit to Kent for exploring it. It takes a bold and brave storyteller to begin this difficult and complex but urgent conversations. Uh, her her main conflict with it is is the conflicting power dynamics of, uh, at play. Um, you know, she makes the point about how Aboriginal women, meanwhile, are left in the, and this is quoting her, in the usual trope. We only see one, Loana, um, is raped and then murdered with no characterization, although we know she's even more disposable than both white women and black men. And this is, this is where I kind of, like, counter with that. I, to me, Claire's plight has 
enormously important as it is, is um, ultimately for, I think, a, a white audience, um, especially a white audience who doesn't have the experience with, like, the Aboriginal plight. And kind of like Rabbit Proof Fence tried to do this two decades ago, but, but kind of, like, failed in many ways. Kent here, for me, is, is creating an access point. Um, by watching a, a you know white woman like raped, having her entire family murdered, and then kind of like setting on course the motion of mm-hmm. the film itself. Um, Which... But at the same time, to to me that this film doesn't then present these two as equals or as um, synonymous with one another. It is a transitional story, you know. Claire kills like like what the the first the fir- one of the first men you know you know a bashingly <laughs> violent scene Again, uh, where the man just will not die we're killing stabs him repeatedly in the chest and then bashes his head what in. we do but, now is we kill babies and we bash heads in that's um, what we do but from there it transitions more into Billy's story and into the more importantly to the Aboriginal story yeah and I think the reason why you have that access point of of the rape later on. It's not so much to speak to like the fact that the English were raping the Irish prisoners and everyone so much as it is to me, in a sense, saying that, you know, this is where my audience, you know, a, a predominantly going to be European white audience can access this film. You know, they're going to understand that the rape yeah. of a white woman is there, there's a profoundly unsettling nature to that. Whereas I, I feel maybe this is reading into it. There's there's a full, and, and, and maybe Kent just was kind of like dealing with this imperfectly. She's still a sophomore director, um, where then she transitions into that, you know, to the rape of the Aboriginal woman, um, which is presented so much more to me harrowingly. Like where she's just crying the entire time mm-hmm. for her child and crying just to like not do that and crying to like. The good spirits above. It is that is the access point by which you transition from the the audience you expect to be watching this to go to the real plight. The fact that well, those these colonializers, you know, these, yeah. these these colonial English were coming in there and raping the yeah, women yeah, yeah. and murdering the men. That's you know that's what happens to the white people in the beginning. A you know white woman's raped twice. A white man and baby are murdered, but this was happening endemically throughout and the, they have, the entire I of colonizations of the early 19th the century. The interesting thing about that point is that there's no we as a uh, it's a, it's a, it's a gold star point. Um, we as yes. a, as an audience have a um, a context for <laughs> gold stars. We have a context for what's happening to Claire. Uh, we have a, a words for it. We have post-traumatic stress disorder, you know what I mean? Which we understand through the dream sequences and things that like are, are very prevalent in this film through um, her, her body language and from her, her, like, her face and stuff like that, um, from some of the words she uses, from her actions. We also, we have to understand too, though, I think as a viewer, that we have no, that the aboriginals that were, the same thing was happening to them, had no context for it. Like, that aboriginal woman that was raped, like, um, 
that was tied to the back of a cart and dragged along to only be raped by people when they stopped for the night um, had no context for what was happening to them in the same way that Billy had no context for his whole family being just systematically wiped out by white men for like, solely based on the color of their skin. You and, know and what I mean? Of, and some of the, like, and, and one of this, the most, like, like, we left this film both kind of not loving it, I think. And I, I, I didn't like, not love it. I just didn't know what it I was I didn't know doing. how I, th- I didn't know how no, I, felt I felt about yeah. it. Yeah. Um, but, but to me, something that, that, that just so powerful about this film is, so Billy, you know, is on the road with Claire. They're, they're walking to the, 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 the city, as it were, the, the colonized town, um, Langston, I think it's Langston. something like that. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, you know, they, they see Aboriginal men and, and, and basically bounty hunters coming at them, and, you know, she holds the gun at them. And it leads to Billy realizing that his entire family's been wiped out, and one of the men kind of like the other Aboriginal men loses it, and that leads to all those Aboriginal men, you know, outside of Billy just being murdered, mm-hmm. and then one of them being like decapitated in front of them as a trophy for a head. Yeah. Um, yeah, so Billy experiences that, and it leads directly into them still walking afterwards, just trying to like walk away from that situation and being picked up by the elderly family with the elderly man who's kind of representing kind of like that progressive sort of idea of of, of the white man who mm-hmm. who's trying to you know open up the palm, Should all do of better all yeah. the trees and whatnot. But then you know leads to that scene where Billy's kind of on the floor eating at the man's house. Um, the man invites him up to the table and he starts crying and, you know, in a kind of prototypical version of this movie, you would expect like him to thank the man and like, I just want to be an equal. And instead Billy says like, this is my land, yep. you know, and that just is, you know, this is, you know, you can't like you still, no matter how well your intentions are, you're on my land. Mm-hmm. You are the invader here. Yep. You are the person who has. An invader in the sense of like even if they had like if they had come and you know tried to assimilate a cult you know culturate to it whatever but they didn't you know you are you are endemic of the problem you are yeah. the systemic issue at hand no matter how you're an invasive no, species yeah, no matter how much you know you want to be opening and inviting you're still the you still represent the parasite upon my people mm-hmm. you know you 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 are not doing me a favor you are not you know, coddling me. You are still a part of the problem. That to me yeah. is so, such a profoundly powerful moment in a, in a film to kind of say that, you know, to say like, oh, there's not like the hero white people who, you know, can help the <laughs> the Aboriginal. Yeah, they're, they're fine. You know, they, you talked about the system. The, the film kind of like mentions when Clara says like, what would you do about the people who, who, you know, what would you do about those people who were the evil spirits? Mm-hmm. And he was like, we'd kill them. Kill them, yeah. You know, like, they had their system in place. They had their culture in place. Mm-hmm. And it, no matter how it wasn't devoid. It wasn't devoid of those people. Yeah. But they just uh, but took it, care of it. Yeah, they had their culture, no matter how much it lacked, like, industrial revolution yeah. um, style sophistication. They still had the moral strength and moral ambiguity of the modern world you know hawkins is as much a degenerate as you know the degenerates were that list existed in tasmania mm-hmm. and to me that's that's where like kind of like that guardian review fails um and maybe a lot of the reviews fail in terms of like underscoring the aboriginal issue is i do think this transitions from 
you know, Claire's story. I think Claire's story is our access point to this film. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, and it even has to me, and I, I mentioned this to you, the Lynn Ramsey rebirth in water scene. Mm-hmm. You know, she's plagued by these traumatic dreams um, that, to a degree, get hokey. Like, like, like this film is about 20 minutes longer than it needs to be. Uh, but she's plagued by these dreams. Eventually, she runs into a river. We get a good, solid underwater shot. She's eventually rebirthed from it and is kind of like reborn as a person. But her reborn as a person's response to this is kind of like a more acculturated response to the world that you'd expect. Well, she's like confronting <clears throat> Hawking's and like establishing herself. And then Billy's response, but Billy, like that, the, the Aboriginal response is, is the one that matters of just like sometimes the scabs upon the world need to be torn well, off. Well, she's not any, she doesn't wake up from that experience any better at killing people. No. You know what I mean? She actually just probably wakes up from it worse um, at killing people but better at um, being empathetic to like perhaps the plight of someone that's going through something similar to her um but is experiencing it in a much more somebody some like, visceral like a, a much br- like larger experience yeah exactly claire's claire's adulthood has been defined by this you know abuse mm-hmm. whereas billy's existence he you talk about being a young child when his father and uncles and brothers are murdered Mm -hmm. you know and taken away from his mothers and aunts and sisters you know his entire life has been drawn from abuse you know his entire existence like Mm -hmm. yeah you know and and that's why you get that ending scene of them singing together in their languages um because there's some sort of pathway by which you know claire has been an unrepentant racist to Billy this entire film. Well, they go tit for tat in that first fire sequence of like where she's saying like, oh, this is how I grew up. And he's like, yeah, they took my whole family and killed them all. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like you didn't have a family. I had a family. They murdered And then them. they murdered them for no reason. I mean, so this is where I would point to. And it's not to underscore like no, what's no, no, happening. No, 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 Claire, no, no, no. It's, just, it's just to say that she exists as a, like. And, and, and I think you, this you, is... could, you could make the argument that using something as traumatic as this as a narrative gateway is problematic, but it's that is what it is. It is a narrative gateway to the issue at well, hand. Well, there are two the things film that really is about colonialization. It's not about an Irish convict's well, hard but time also, in Australia. But it's colonialization in on two levels. It's colonialization um, from the actual physical level of like what you have to do to colonize somebody, and it's the second one is the effect of of uh, the colonizer or, or the colonized. The effect that, that colonization has on the colonists, you know what I mean? Yeah. And that includes in this scenario, Claire. Claire's experience is just different than Billy's experience. Billy's is just more widespread and representative of a much larger problem. I mean, Claire's, Claire's is Claire's representative just, of a larger problem, also. But it's, it's they're they're, it's, they're both victims of colonization. The the problem in, yes. in, in comparison and equality of the depth of those problems. And and I don't want to say just Billy. I want to say Billy and and the the woman who's who's but he's our he's our like he's he's our Charlie too is like the other um yeah exactly but the depth the difference in depth is that Claire is taking from she has no like she has to degree let's say she has no family but she's taking from her homeland and brought to a new place 
So she has a kind of carte blanche in terms of what she's structured her existence around. She still has the background of kind of like the Gaelic language and the in the Irish experience, whereas Billy and the Aboriginal woman and Charlie's entire world has been upended. Their existence no longer is a They're almost, they almost not, is, don't it exist been, anymore. It's been burnt earth motherfucker sort of. The idea is, is for them to at the end of this the idea at the end of this movie, I suppose, um, from the British perspective, is that like these people don't exist on this island anymore. And Whereas it is, yeah, it's their island, but Rose took is, it from them. Rose is ruined forever. But Claire. like Claire, oh, sorry, Claire is ruined forever. Rose is just on a raft, but, uh, but Jack is drowned. Yeah. Um, but this, so this is an this I think leads to I think my one problem with the movie, which I think was echoed in Sheila O'Malley's review on RogerEbert.com and wherever else that Sheila O'Malley writes, is that she talks about there's like a lack of visual subtext in this movie, mm-hmm. which I think, which I think is problematic. So remember when Twelve Years a Slave came out and everyone said that Twelve Years a Slave was too pretty to be a movie about slavery. It was just like yes, too yes. good looking. There was too much visual subtext and everything. You know what I mean? And Steve Where, McQueen probably bashed the head in of a couple yeah. film reviewers that um, we, just, we just didn't hear about it. Unfortunately, one of them wasn't Armand Way, but that's a different conversation. Um, <laughs> Steve McQueen let him live just for fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he could just toil always. away at the National Review. And Steve McQueen's just always looking over his shoulder. <sighs> but sometimes he's right, Ben. Sometimes he's right, and that bugs the shit out of me. Um, Broken clock, man. This movie is very plain. It's funny that this is made by the same director that made The Babadook because this is a very... And I think she did it on purpose, but I think it detracts from what's happening that there isn't more symbolism. There isn't more poetic imagery happening here that, no, I, can, the aspect that I can attach ratio, to like some of the emotions. You know what I mean? The aspect ratio is, is almost a 4-3. You know? which, which you've said was kind of strange for this kind of movie. Yeah. It's more of like a pseudo documentary style than it is which i think is like it's purposeful like, that's film. why that's why the, the the most symbolic this film ever gets is is during those post traumatic scenes of like her dream scenes but like that's not even that could just be you know you could look at that as just like the imposter or or sleepwalk with me um or even like waltz with bashir which are documentary in nature but present kind of dreamlike qualities that exist in the real world. Talk- her, her dreams are, are tantamountly real. Like, she, I would 100% believe that a woman who had just seen her wife, or her husband and child murdered, and had been you know, systemically raped for years at, the, yeah, like yeah, years yeah. at this point, and then been gang-raped, would experience these dreams. Like, they're, but, they're all within the scope of When realism. she ran into the river there, you also kind of say like, well, that seems like there's a dream at one part, but then you're just like, well, did she stop dreaming? And like, I can did she see- wake up and run into the river? Like, I'm but, not. But at, even I'm at that, sure. even at that point, like the 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 amount of sle- like sleep she's deprived herself of, the you know you could even look at it as like the amount of REM sleep she's missing from her dreams. Well, I guess she would be having REM sleep from the dreams, but the amount of like consistent sleep and the amount of energy she's exalted would have created hallucinations. Sure, sure, sure. I buy that. Like everything in this film, I, I buy as a very tangible, unsymbolic point. But it it's is, like the the symbolism in this is just her. To me, the symbolism that it's only almost too tangible is just her story existing, and I think that's why like like. It's it's a hard film for a sophomore director to tackle, and that's where I think a lot of people are having the problems here, is because it's so not allegorical, 
having Claire's story be allegory to the actual point of the film, you know, which I which I feel is like Claire's mm-hmm. story is the allegory and the access well, yeah, point that's, it's problematic to the Aboriginal to have it, the Aboriginal crisis of what happened with colonization. It's problematic to have if you don't allegory, have an allegory with in a film without allegory, you can't. But it's an allegory to something that we're gonna experience. Yeah. So and that is an allegory for like the broader experience of what happened in like the colonization of of those islands. You know what I mean? Mm. So it's like an allegory to lead into a another allegory which it references like a bigger allegory, but on underneath all of those maybe things, a simile is thrown in there. Yeah, maybe. Underneath all of that is is nothing. You know what I mean? Everything's very surface level. You can see everything that's happening. It would be nice to have um a foundation of <sighs> some kind of representational metaphor or imagery or symbolism or something that you can like attach to these things that make them that add depth to them so they're not just kind of skimming along the surface of the narrative and um seem like they're really reaching back to like the, the um not the true history but to like the true pain you know what i mean uh-huh. um but they don't. They're just all... Everything's just there. Everything's there on the screen. And you have to reckon with it all, which is fine, but it's hard. Um, and so it's hard when you have all these rapes, and the rapes seem representative when you're watching them at first of nothing. So you have to watch the whole movie before you understand, like, It's not, it's not until the Aboriginal woman's... She's raped that you understand. But like, that's like the, an that's like an hour and a half into the movie. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's an hour and a half into a two and well, hour like an, and, about so like, like an hour or so into it. But it's like not until then that you kind of like realize what the point was being made. Because that point, like those two rapes earlier, like the first one is stressful. The second one is worse, especially when it's a rape atop. It's a gang rape, and then that by that point you've you've been so you have such a. a stimulus response to it that you uh, that the response to her rape is you know the aboriginal woman's rape is then exactly the sort of emotive sense the emotional sense that you know ken is looking for Mm -hmm. um and i don't know it's it's like i i I really appreciate what this film's doing i think it's i think it's too ambitious for a sophomore feature i think she's still it's i mean in that regard it's the perfect sophomore feature yeah she's a great director but like it's just but like i know but like is it the perfect sophomore feature when you're dealing with something that hasn't been no, but this touched? Is what, this is what the soft... hasn't been that hasn't been hit that hasn't like you know when when the most important at least from a mainstream perspective film is um, the early two thousands rabbit proof fence and even that handles it in in the most you know uh, soft gloves sort of well, way. So like, I've been reading this. I've been like reading to go the complete yeah. opposite and have somebody that, who imperfectly handles it like. That that's that's my stress with it. That that's my problem with it. Is like it's like I I understand what's being said, and it's an amazingly important thing to be said because I think it's so brushed under mm-hmm. the rug in terms yeah, yeah, of yeah. Australian history. But I also um, think there's a there's a more artful way to do it that would make it more um, powerful and palatable. Because by the end of the movie, you're just kind of like worn out, and you're just kind of like, well, I just really want this movie to end because the suffering here is really is. Um, it's you know I th- I think I think to me what ends up happening with this film um, is it's it's a really solid film for a really weak cinematic year, but it has all the pretense to be a culturally significant film. It has the pretense to be 
the you know the red dressed girl on the pile of black and white bodies like Cinder's list are Grave of the Fireflies as as that hmm. that point of making a profoundly impactful statement um, that maybe is lost through the quote unquote sands of time um, that that film does you know that that, that film kind of creates a, a modern like a modern tangible touch to mm. things that are lost through history this film could have done that but she's still wrestling with how she can frame a narrative and how she can frame not not a narrative i think she has a control on narrative yeah, yeah, yeah. But how she can frame the manipulation and i say manipulation with you know the the, the, well, the best of the best of terms because because film needs to manipulate the manipulation of the emotion of the audience without overdoing it and without confusing how the audience is supposed to feel. Here's what I would say: is that in the Babadook was easy because she got to place a lot of uh, a lot of emotion and subtext inside the character of the Babadook, and in, and it's small, it's it's contained, and in, yeah. and in those books, and in um, people's and re- in, in her reaction to encountering. The various manifestations of the Babadook, and, and, she, and, and she can she, she can, can take... she can make a, an important point in the fact of how we, you know, no, no, but de, de-emphasize like grief because it's so small and contained. What and I'm she saying, can focus it in such a small but, like character. The, the specifics aren't really important in the sense that like she has a vehicle to to place them mm-hmm. that becomes inherently symbolic. She doesn't have that stuff here. So she's trying to. I feel she tries to do it with like the bird, like the the blackbird. She's but kind she of trying to do it with the bird, but I actually think but she's it doesn't trying, go anywhere. I think she's trying to do it. It doesn't with, go anywhere significant. She's trying to do it with the violence. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. you can't stuff subtext into violence unless you give us additional subtext for that violence. So like a rape can't be representative of, especially when you're going to do it so many times, can't really be representative of other things if you're also going to show us the other things. Yeah, you know no, I mean, you, you, a, a, like, you know, if you a violent, to... of sexual violence and graphic sexual violence can't be representative of the horrors of the time if it's also presented along the side of the catharsis of, like, you know, that guy getting his head bashed in. But if you want to make shown. Claire's rapes, which is, uh, I think, I, I really hate that we're talking about it like this, but I don't really feel like there's any other way to talk about it. If you want to make them really meaningful, you have them be the stand in. Or the symbolic stand-in for whatever else was happening in um, Tasmania at the time, in Australia time, wherever. You know what I mean? You don't, you know, you don't show the rapes and grapple with the emotion of the rapes, and then let them, and then also have them be representative of what's happening, but then also show you what's happening because that's not subtext anymore. That's not symbolic of anything. That's not um, artful. That's just um, a fictionalized documentary of something that really happened a lot, um, which is fine and which is admirable and which I um, really appreciate and responded to and, and, and um, was moved by, but doesn't carry the same weight that something done more artfully would do or that even something like The Babadook did, um, which you know is a movie that people... You know, along with what are the what are the horror movies from that kind of the kind of neo, um, you know, indie horror kind of explosion that happened in like the mid 2010. So like it follows and the Babadook and you know perhaps it ends with Hereditary. Um, yeah, yeah, it's all exactly. all those types of movies. 
um, where she had that vehicle, she lost that vehicle, and now everything's just everything's just sitting there weirdly, and you just have to reckon with all of it in its in its terribleness, which is fine, but it's just it's just tough. Hmm. It's and it's and it's and it's not palatable, and it and it's exa- <laughs> and it's exhausting. Um, I don't know. It doesn't have that element. Uh, it doesn't have. It doesn't. And not that a movie about something so terrible should pop, but even something like Schindler's List, which we've, I feel like we've mentioned a bunch of times in the last two weeks, um, Schindler's List pops like it's a work of art. You know what I mean? It's not just a work of punishment. Mm-hmm. Um, no, exactly. And maybe movies in sometimes they should be that, but I don't. Know, I, don't I don't really want to see it. Like I, I don't always want to go back to it. You know what I mean? I don't know if that makes it successful. No, I agree, and I I don't think that's the intent here, but I, I think that's what ends up happening. I mean, is that the intent? I mean, I, I didn't see anything. Is that the intent of her to just bludgeon us with like the no, facts I, I of? Think, I think it's I think it's to present you know the 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 unrelenting nature of, of what was going on. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think she's she's repentant about that. Um, and nor should she be. No, she shouldn't be. It's important, but I, at the same time, I do think it's it's meant to show. You know the the fact of culture, like like the the, the Aboriginal kind of like response to it, and being able to kind of like the strength of of their character can rise above it to a degree, and mm-hmm. I, I think that's kind of representative in, in his final song. Like he's now he's dying. Yeah, I love that song. final scene. Yeah, um, and, and like that's the one time you see like coexistence. You know, like like an attempt to. The, the invader to to assimilate mm-hmm. in a sense um, but when it's so unrelenting in that way it's kind of muddled and lost mm. and it's, it's a beautiful attempt it just it's very worth it's a very worthy attempt at it and I'm, I mean, it's, a, it's a great watch I'd, I'd suggest people it's just uh, to see it I mean if you're tough. if you're if you're nobody would blame me if you turned it off at like the 23 minute work yeah, or, like, no, or earlier. No, like ten minutes. I think even ten minutes in, like the first, the first, yeah, yeah, scene is. Um, but it is, it's ambitious, and I'm excited for what she does in the future as she kind of like refines that voice and kind of like finds that tone um, and finds that ability to kind of like navigate the narrative. But well, I mean, she isn't there yet. You know, it's funny. I was listening to a podcast today. They were talking about Ava DuVernay and um, like the really interesting way that I guess her career is kind of built up. I would prefer Jennifer Kent to take five years between movies and make keep making these movies than Ava DuVernay, who made like a, a a very good film in Selma, than just deciding like yeah I'll do Wrinkle in Time. The Wrinkle in Time. Well, that's the give thing. me all the money, Disney. Like Jer- Jennifer Kent got offered projects, and she was like, no, I'm going to do Nightingale. Yeah, like, that's my next thing. Exactly. Like like like, resp- like I you know I would be, I would be, be, okay be as that. we just said a Lynn Ramsey you know yeah and. And navigate that voice. I, I, I think she's she's definitely trying it. to she's trying to do more than Lynn Ramsey's. Lynn Ramsey's like telling a very symbolic kind of like human thing. But it's funny like you, Kent's trying to do something that's a really sort of Lynn Ramsey's real like not real and, I, and that's not to discredit like what Ramsey's doing, but more of a historically tangible, neglected. Yeah, aspect. but it's funny because Lynn Ramsey's career is like a really interesting one in comparison to this one as well because she makes Ratcatcher and then. She fucking blows shit up and makes Morvan Caller, where there's chopping up bodies in in bathtubs and they're 
going to, you know, they're wherever they, I forget where they go at the end of that. Was it Morocco? Yeah, yeah. They go to, Fine you back. know, they're walking through the desert in Morocco and she's, you know, doing all this crazy stuff. And it's, it's, um, it's a leveling. You got to have that. I mean, Morvan Caller is like a great movie. Um, but it's the same thing where like you make a good movie, people respond to it, you kick it up all the notches and then you start kind of finding your voice again and how that works. And so now when Lynn Ramsey makes movies, they're all kind of, they're of a whole, they're the most artistic films that you can see. They're beautiful and excellently done. And even when they don't work for you, you can say like, holy shit, that was a, that, that did all the things. Yeah. yeah you know yeah. what I mean? They're the same age too. Are they? Yeah. Oh, awesome. Very good. So, I mean, that's the thing. I'm looking forward to all of those yeah, this Ramsey movie, this and movie has, Kent movies. But. This movie has me excited for what Jeffrey Kent's going to do. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's not, I agree. It's not, it's not a sophomore slump sort of thing. It's, it's no, it's not a sophomore slump. It's just that sophomore, it's a, maybe like... Maybe overreach. Sophomore, just, over, sophomore let's, overreach. Let's go get it. Yeah. And then you're just kind of like, well, you got... You went I see what you're doing, but like yeah. you, you missed a bit. All right, so we will be right back with my number 50. Welcome back. Um, oh, the beard scratch, guys. Beard scratch. Beard scratch That's face. how you know something shit. Shit's going to happen. Something's going down. Uh, it was late 2003, maybe early 2004. It was in New Haven. Was there a swift boat thing going on at the time? Not that I was paying attention to. Okay. Because I was going to the New York Square Cinema, watching all the movies. The oft-mentioned New York York Square cinema. I haven't mentioned it in a long time, but I feel like we're we're heading back into the York Square territory of of my list here. Um, yeah, when I was twenty one, I was pretty much in New Haven all the time. I was playing in bands. I was going to regular Rudy's, not the shit Rudy's that exists now, but like actual Rudy's that um, is three sheets now, but it used to be Rudy's playing shows as my T Rex cover band. Zinc Gallery and the Hidden Riders of Tomorrow, which I've also mentioned. Um, I saw a movie. I don't remember. I don't remember which movie I saw, but it's hard for me to say because I saw uh, like everything that York Square showed. I was just at York Square all the time, and I walked a couple storefronts down to. Uh, used to be a record store in New Haven called Cutlers. They had two record stores right next to each other: Cutlers Classical and then just regular Cutlers. And uh, I lived my whole life at Cutlers until it closed for absolutely no reason. Um, and the educated burger next to it. Fuck that stupid shit. Yeah, like that burger place. Educated burger's fine. Um, yeah, Cutler's was Cutler's. It was, was nice a big to deal. have a local burger place that served fries downtown. Yeah, there's no place that does that at all. Local place that serves like a char broiled burger with fries. Fucking Louis Lunch. I actually know the owner of Louis Lunch. I didn't know that I knew the owner of Louis Lunch, but I do. Well, maybe he should serve fries with his goddamn shit burger. <laughs> maybe. Um, so, yeah, I walked to the Cutler's and I was looking around and uh, it was pawing through their massive... They had really deep CDs. This was like the heyday of CDs and they had really deep CD things and they were all in these foggy, plastic, clear plastic cages. Oh, I, I remember that. I can't... I, I moved here 2009, mm-hmm. and I remember Cutler's having, like, really, it was, they were hard to read the CDs you were looking yeah, at. Yeah, it was great. It was fucking great. Big, huge stickers on them with the price. Um, 
and I encountered something I I I unknown to me at the time, Mario. It was a selection of DVDs with numbers on the spine with really provocative covers and and in several different languages and I said, What the what the fuck is this? And I was a DVD guy. I was really big into the DVDs when all those when like special editions of stuff. So remember and you have a couple of them downstairs. Remember when like the seven DVD came out with like like the bonus disc or like the Fight Club DVD that was like wrapped in brown paper that like had the bonus disc and all this other stuff. You got your DVD right there. Good the, the bad DVD. Um, upstairs. I was like a DVD whore. I like anything that was like an interesting special edition DVD. Like I had to have oh, it. Same. That was my first um, encounter with like Magnolia. Was that is that that new line double disc Magnolia thing came in a slipcase and it felt like it weighed like 100 pounds. Well, you, you've seen my four-disc Blade Runner. Yeah, exactly. That's the exact thing. I wanted all of those DVDs, and I'm, I had a DVD problem for a long time. Um, my DVD problem became... My DVD obsession became like a legitimate problem. It's like when your Oxycontin problem becomes like you live under a bridge now. Like, that's what I'm talking about. I'm, I'm going <laughs> deep and hardcore here. That's a little rough in the current climate. It's it's a little rough in the current climate, but it also like equal a lot of the same things. Like I opened credit cards and I maxed out just buying these DVDs. You know oh, what I mean? Really? That's what I did. Oh. I just I three hundred dollars credit card. You know, build up your credit. Gone in six seconds because I ordered like a whole bunch of Criterion DVDs from Amazon and or bought them at Cutler's. And that's what I'm talking about. Talk about Criterion. I discovered the fucking Criterion Collection, and my life changed for the worse for a very long time. And we're giving them now money every month. Which is fine, because I appreciate what they're... It's actually better to do this. Oh, absolutely. Way better to do this than what the fuck I was doing. I remember I bought... I remember I bought a copy of... You ever see the Robert Altman movie, Three Women? Uh, Thank God, probably not. With Shelley Duvall and... um, I haven't. Okay. I, I we've talked about this. I fucking hate Robert Altman. <laughs> I I don't I you Short cuts, speak to me. Doctor T and the Women yeah. and uh, Nashville are, are good enough for me. He doesn't speak to me. Um, on Mash. But I read all. He speaks I, to me, which is uh, I I don't know how to make a movie. That's yeah. good. <laughs> I read all the blurbs and I was like, well, I definitely have to have this. You didn't know anything about these movies when you go on by? Nope. I was just like, it's Criterion. The blurb says this, which is, I mean, Criterion, if you read the blurbs on the Criterion Collection website, it makes every movie seem like the single most profound movie oh, that absolutely. was ever made. And you're just, you watch them and you're just like, well, yeah, I guess. That's pretty good. I don't know if it's was worthy of the I $31 I spent on this. They definitely, they did a good job selling and, and showing that naked lunch Criterion. I had that. Totally had that. That's, that's a good. That's a good cover, and that's a. Those are good special features on that one. A lot of them have great covers, and a lot of them have great special features. But they just, I don't know. I felt like I was part of some club. I thought I was. I thought upon buying my first Criterion movie, I thought I had entered like a secret world. Um, and you did not know that the thousandth spine number was going to be just the old Toho Godzilla films. Well, I also didn't Showa. know. I also didn't Godzilla. I also, at the time, when Talk I bought... about my, real bummer. Yeah. Of a thousand spine. I also didn't know when my when I Great bought covers. my first Criterion DVD that, like, 
that series also included the Silence of the Lambs or Armageddon or RoboCop. Are all of Wes Anderson? And I was just like 2006. Well, I was I'm okay with one of those, but um, I didn't know all of them. I didn't know that Mario. I only knew the when I bought the first one. I only knew the first one, and that first one is my number fifty movie on my pivotal film list. Is Akira Kurosawa's Throne of Blood. So you just asked me off air here if I had seen any Kurosawas before this. I did not know that there was such a person in the world as Akira Kurosawa. I just saw the red and white and black cover. I saw the title Throne of Blood. I saw Adaptation of Macbeth and the always provocative blurb on the back of the box. And I said, this is mine. Yeah. Okay. 30 bucks? I got this 30 bucks. I know. Let's do it. Um, and I brought it home, and I put it in my DVD player, and probably because it's, it's either late 2003 or early 2004, it's probably 2 in the morning because I didn't sleep at all <laughs> between 2001 and like 2005. I was a fairly... I was a very strict non-sleeper back then. Um, and my mind was blown forever. It was the single wildest movie I've ever seen in my life. Um, and that was just from the opening the opening shots. Not the, not the chorus, although the chorus um, is, is fascinating and terrifying and not the fog-drenched pillar. Um, which I was confused about and just had so many questions, but you know, it was the most compellingly shot pillar of wood, you know, contained within a fence that I had ever seen in my in my life. But then there's those amazing wide shots of the emperor or the king or the general, whatever he was, and all of his men around him just sitting on those platforms. Um and I didn't even know what to do with myself. I had never seen anything like it in in films. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So up to that point, I would seen like, you know, I got I got my ghost worlds going on. I got my storytelling. I got my indie garbage that I'm kind of, you know, going to see at York Square all the time. You know, and I'll branch out and I'll see, you know, whatever the big movie is. I'll see all the movies. I liked movies. I loved movies. A lot of those movies that I saw before that, um, I have very profound relationships with and are going to turn up over on my list. Um, but I hadn't ever seen anything like Throne of Blood. Like, never. And it 
like I said, it ruined me for a long time. So we also talked off air of like, have I seen like the Kurosawa's on the Criterion Collection? I owned every single Criterion Kurosawa. Do you know when I stopped owning Criterion Kurosawa's? When they started reissuing them. And I was like, I can't buy. I bought some reissues and I was like, I can't buy all these reissues. Because I already owned them. So I can't buy Hidden Fortress again with a new cover. You know, I can't buy the box set of all of, you know, um, Sanjuro and Yojimbo and all those other stuff. I can't, I just can't do it. I can't buy the new, I can't, I can't buy a new Rashomon. I already own Rashomon twice. I own it on the, the double disc with the gold cover with the Rashomon gate on it. And I own it in my, my 50, my 50 years of Janus Films collection. So I'm not going to buy the new cover of Rashomon regardless of how beautiful it is. Can't do it. But I, I conceived a life where I thought I should be able to do it. And it wasn't just because of my obsessive compulsive nature to own things and collect things and have a certain number of things. And if I can't have the exact number of things, then I just have to have all the things. It was because these movies were so fucking great that I needed to see them and I needed to own them. And not just the Akira Kurosawa stuff, but like all I attributed that to all the criteria collections. I remember there was one night I was up late and I was on AOL instant messenger and I was AOL instant messaging with a girl. And I was like, I'm going to go downstairs and watch Jean Renoir's rules of the game. Do you want to come over and watch it with me? I hung out all night with a girl because of a criterion collection DVD that I bought. I like sold around. I was like, oh, this is a special edition. It's got a see-through clear box. And it's got all this stuff and it's French and it's important and we got to watch it. You know, we got to do the, we got to watch rules of the game. Everyone's got to see rules of the game. I got a date because of Criterion Collection Mario. You get a second one? It was my whole life. It's complicated. We're not going to talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> it gets very complicated. Um, but none of that stuff would exist. My whole film experience changed because of Throne of Blood. And that's the funny thing I, when I was thinking about this. I had a relationship with like some complicated movies. Like Raging Bull is not like an easy movie. And I went through, and we're going to talk about Raging Bull later, and in that film is literature class that I talked about when I talked about um, The Accidental Tourist, like we tore Raging What's Bull. What's that movie? <laughs> By Larry Kasdan. Remember? Our buddy Larry Kasdan? I remember it. I'm going to definitely at Larry Kasdan when I put... Does he, have a, does he have a Twitter? I hope so. He's got to have a Twitter, right? He's got to keep in touch. Check it out. Um, we tore Raging Bull apart. But there was something about Raging Bull, and I loved it. And I loved the experience. He doesn't have one. That's too bad. Does he have an Instagram? Is John, he... John Kasdan. Oh, I'll just tweet. I'll is. tweet John Kasdan. Lawrence Kasdan. I direct you to his... Wait. Who knows? Okay. <laughs> um, nope. No, I don't, I don't think he does. Ah, oh, it's too bad. Um, I'll just do a hashtag. So if they when they're aggregating like who's trending on Twitter, maybe Larry Kasdan will pop up there. Um, it's complicated. I mean, you know, Raging Bull. From if you look at it from at its component His parts, his son has a Twitter. Okay, well I'll do him. We look at its component parts. Is a complicated is a is, is a complicated movie. Like uh, he um, Martin Scorsese did a lot of of weird things with with um, sound effects, with lighting, with visual imagery, with metaphor, um, all this stuff. Like the, the fight scenes, everything. Slow motion, the whole deal. Um, 
when I watched Throne of Blood for the first time, none of those rules applied anymore. There were different rules, and I didn't know what any of the new rules were. And the way to find out the new rules of film for me, I think so. What I'm saying is that Raging Bull kind of set up a, 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 like some rules for film, like and how to make uh, a film that is, or what a film could be. You know what I mean? And so when we were talking about Nightingale before and how there's no visual subtext to Nightingale, um, Raging Bull is all visual subtext. I was looking for a certain kind of visual subtext. I was looking for very specific things. That was the language of film, I thought, stopped and started with Raging Bull and everything just kind of cycled around that. You know what I mean? It was the sun and every other movie that came after it was just like in the orbit of Raging Bull as far as I was concerned. Um, Throne of Blood showed me that that 100% wasn't true that there was a whole other universe of film outside of what Martin Scorsese did in 1980. Um, and I just assumed it started 1957 in Japan, and this is when films first were made. And this is clearly the first film. It was an artifact of some unknown universe. You know, clearly, uh, you know, sustained by the <laughs> their meeting with the forest spirit, which is... So we, you know, when people like say things are terrifying, you know what I mean? And like in literature, like, oh, that's terrifying. And it's not terrifying. It's just like something stupid. It's like, yeah, I guess it's terrifying. I was utterly terrified by the forest spirit. Well, that utterly that... terrified, like to my fucking core. This whole movie. So how's they going? Yeah, no, that, that's that's interesting. Like, how's they going through a cobweb like for it? Like, just 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 show, like how Kurosawa controlled the screen. Like he has that telephoto lens. Like, they're running on clearly defined paths, like, while they're doing that. You know? But the point that I'm making is that, like, I didn't know any of that stuff. It yeah, just yeah. looked like, it looked like... It's horror. It's a, it looked it's, like... It's overwhelming. A, a visual tableau that was uh, was overwhelming and profound. But then a narrative... into uh, utter chaos. Yeah. Where I'm, like, where they're shooting arrows at the sky. There's things laughing. Like, what the fuck is happening here? They're just riding at breakneck speeds through the woods and the, the camera's following them through the trees. It's like, what is this? And then it just ends with this really long scene of these two guys just, like, watching this asexual woman-man woman, yeah. thing just spinning threads in this little hut. I didn't know any of the things. But this movie put in motion, for me, a quest to kind of, like, not understand things, but, like, that there was more out there. You know what I mean? That there's always more out there. And, it, like, it's true for... <clears throat> I had this experience with books, and I've had this experience with movies, and I've had this experience with, like, visual arts. Is that, like, you think you understand something on a level because you know a thing really well. Like, when I was a douchebag high school kid, I was, like, the Fight Club. I was a Chuck Palahniuk guy in high school. I knew everything about oh, Fight Club. Guy, huh? I knew everything about Survivor and Invisible Monsters. And, like, I was at first, I waited in line to buy Choke. You know what I mean? When it came out, because every... And then Haunted came out, and you're like, oops. Oh, no. Then Lullaby came out, and I was like, oh, I'm all done. <laughs> um, but that was my thing. You know what I mean? And we talked last week about identity. And I was always looking for, like, an identity. I was always looking for like my next thing that I could visualize my own self through. And like I read a bunch of books and I settled on Chuck Palahniuk and that was my author and I just like dug into him and he was my thing. And then through the blurbs on the back of Chuck Palahniuk books, I realized there was a whole nother universe outside of Chuck Palahniuk, which leads to Don DeLillo, which leads to Philip Roth, which leads to 
like John Updike, unfortunately, which leads to like all these other like different writers and stuff like that, which leads me to today where I'm now reading like tons of different people. Like I, I have a very vast like taste in, in, in literature and in music. And that's like the same thing in music. As far as music goes, it was like, oh, well, Pearl Jam and Stone Temple Pilots are, are the two best bands ever. They're the only two bands that matter, and sometimes Led Zeppelin was good, and that's really all that. That's really all that matters. You know what I mean? And then you hear, then you watch the VH1s behind the music of the Black Crows, and you're like, so, there's something else. Yeah, yeah. There's something else. You know what I mean? Or you pick up Michael Azerod's Our Band Could Be Your Life, and you read about the 80s indie rock stuff, and you're like, I didn't. You. <laughs> what are the replacements? Like, where did they come from? You just, there's... The veil's pulled back. You hit something. Yes, you get beyond, in the Stephen King parlance, you puncture the thin scrim between this reality and the reality beyond what we understand to be life, and you see what real reality is like. Okay, past that fulcrum of blackness that exists in between it. You don't want to stay there. Yeah, exactly. And that's that's Throne of Blood for me. And, um, you know, I probably don't watch it as often as I should but I watch it a bunch and it is still like it's still awesome it's the most thrilling Akira Kurosawa experience I've, I've, I've had and I've seen almost all of his movies I think because it's 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 a lot like Ran and it's a lot like Seven Samurai but it's like shorter and it's more streamlined and the emotions are more um like visceral and like on the surface, but the imagery is equally haunting and, and, and profound as it is in, in those movies as well. You know what I mean? It carries this extra layer of terror, um, which at the time I didn't understand, but like as I've had a chance to process it and like get into Macbeth and get into kind of the lineage and the difference between Macbeth and um, Throne of Blood, of which Throne of Blood is an adaptation of, which I don't think I mentioned at all, um, is... You know, I've been able to kind of get into it a little bit more. So, I mean, just to do the plot and then we can talk about the movie. So instead of, um, it takes the events of Macbeth and transposes them into 16th century um, Japan with a healthy dose of... 16th, yeah. That's, like, maybe, that's, like maybe. In, that's what everyone's... All the writing says yeah. like 16th century. Um, there's a lot of political stuff. It's definitely stuff. some Goku period. Yeah. Um, it's pre like muskets. Well, so they said so it's that either late 15th, early what they've 16th. said is that it's in the time of Japanese culture when the power of the emperor was very limited and the power of the samurai. Yeah. So, was the, so the daimyos, in, the, uh, the kind of like regional lords were kind of like, right. In, were, in were powerful, but they didn't understand how they were powerful yet because the idea of like life without a powerful emperor really wasn't which, something that was like vast which makes it makes so there's it all from, these questions which it. makes it profound to to 1950s japan which is in its own sort of like power struggle and sort of its own kind of reclamation well but, of speci- its world. but specifically to we contacted with this a little bit before but specifically to kira kurosawa who 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 um envisioned <clears throat> or who perceived japan as kind of losing its nature to um like Western values and, and like a Western style capitalism and stuff like that was kind of giving away its, its um, like moral sovereignty to these, to these other countries. Yeah. And this, this film, absolutely. It, you know, it, it sequesters and um, dominates 
what would be Western literature and, and presents it through the, the strong veil of, of Eastern art. Well, and I think one of the things that's great about reading, and so, you know, we both kind of were reading a lot about this uh, leading up to the, the episode, is that um, apparently a lot of, like, Shakespeare scholars, like, really have a big problem with this movie because it extracts a lot of the... Which is interesting because it's commonly considered to be the, the strongest adaptation of adaptation it's... of Shakespeare because it, it takes out the, the pretense of formal staging and, and leaves just the essence of kind of the moral dilemma. Well, but it doesn't... Uh, as, as, it, as it were. And it turns um, it into a movie. No. So where, like, instead it, of... It does... It, it does transcends like... the, the, the page, which, which is the, the, the advent... Of, of Shakespeare itself, like the, like a lot of people say that the intention of Shakespeare was to transcend, you know, the globe was was to present a, a moral tale that kind of could transcend a, a verbal dialogue or, or some something some that could like be passed down. Well, it's a thing, and so like we talked about um, Hamlet, Lawrence Olivier's Hamlet, like a while ago with yours. I think one of the interesting things about Hamlet is that like because he's just adapting the the play, he's just extracting. Well, I'm just extracting language. I think I think a more I think a more apt description would be Polanski's Macbeth, which we talked about earlier too. Polanski's Macbeth too, where but and and, and in in that we even mentioned Wells's Macbeth, um, which as a direct result of Wells's Macbeth, you know, Kurosawa waited a few years mm-hmm. to, to produce this. But I think it's interesting because those people are working with a purely um, intellectual kind of understanding verbal and verbal yeah. medium. You know what I mean? They are dealing in. This essay, um... and like uh, Polanski's kind of an interesting take. Like, so Olivier exists a hundred percent, and as you, as you search through the my documents, the documents of of, of knowledge, um, Olivier exists with Hamlet in the sense of of presenting it first and foremost as a verbal medium and using the visual has you know subtext to underline that 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 verbal sense. Um, I guess to a certain degree, like Polanski does the same thing, but Polanski's kind of using the visual medium, but still paying such extreme reverence to. But Polanski is interesting because he takes language. it. He takes it a step further, and he adds like a layer of, um, like an over. He like lays a blanket of a very specific emotion over like the whole thing, where he's and because of like the nature of of how it was filmed. And where it was filmed, and like, just like the textures and 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 the colors and things. Um, there's just this really profound, angry sadness that kind of colors everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the like some of the violence of that production comes out of the fact that like everything's just miserable. Like this is just like we're all miserable. Polanski is miserable. Macbeth is miserable. Lady what? Macbeth is miserable. Like everyone just is like. Dirty all the time, and it's dank, and like all this other. Oh, stuff. it's it stands still in stark contrast to this, in, in the sense that like, whereas Polanski is still paying reverence to the language of the play, but presenting his kind of opinion on the world through the visual medium mm-hmm. and through like musical cues and the ways in which performances are staged and blocked, Kurosawa skews all of that. And allows everything to exist on the emotional level by which he wants it to be. But he does that through, even only through the visuals, though. Which is like the great thing about this is that he kind of 
takes to to a degree. No, I mean, he, takes he, all, he but utterly. But I mean, he's not. A, he's not so. But he's not. A, he's not a slave to. He's not a slave to the play. No, he's a slave not. to the ideas of the play. He's not a slave to the actual play itself. I mean, so all of your typical. All the things that everyone assumes that like, you have to have in like a, a, a production of Macbeth, all the great monologues, he takes all the monologues out. Well, he, from, and he just from, leaves them. It's all, it's just whatever you see on the screen is like the emotion of that monologue from moment one. Like this play famously kind of borrows from the no theater, mm-hmm. um, the minimalization and the smallness and the closeness of that theater. By opening with a very quiet chorus. You know, Macbeth begins with the stage direction of thunder and lightning. You know, it begins loud. It begins brash. Throne of Blood begins small, quiet. Shots of stillness. You know, black and white contrasted stillness. You know, there is no fogginess. There is no rain. There is no gloominess. There's tons of fog. There's tons of fog, but it is delineated fog it is not murky it is defined it is it has structure well so there's an interesting way if that is if, if you understand what i'm saying yeah that. i guess but there's so when that um person in the guardian was talking about nightingale and like um surrealism like the fog in this plays an element in like developing a, a, a surrealist kind of atmosphere here where there is, it's almost, it exists on a different, everything kind of seems to exist on a different plane of reality. Yeah, exactly. So when like, um, I mean, it's a, it exists in the Sengoku period, but it, it still is unto itself its own thing. And so it's separated by that. I mean, it, you know, Kurosawa shoots, creates a three dimensional thrown like a castle set on the foothills of Mount Fuji Mm -hmm. to create that contrasting black and white, to create that ashen whiteness in the dirt, you know, to create that kind of like death and desolence there. Um, that, that is in stark contrast, like contrast to anything you would see in the real world. Um, and even, you know, Toho spends the money to bring that ash and ground into their studios for the interior sets, you know, this is a really deliberate choice to separate it from any sort of conceivable timeline, any sort of conceivable real world applications. It is sure. a yeah, yeah. world scorched, which this is, it's important, you know, this setting being a world scorched, I think is so. Yeah. But I don't know how much it. a world scorched could, uh, I don't know how, I think, I think, like I, the, think I think we only forested. It's forested, but where civilization exists, like there's still nature. There's still the wonder, not the wonder. There still is the element of the unknown existing outside of the scope of man. That being sort of the greater sort of underlying. And this is where we're going to, this is going to be the interesting conversation of this. I mean, me, I, I came into this film recently, like within the past, like, when you showed me this list, I hadn't seen Throne of Blood yet, so I mm-hmm. watched it. Um, so I had seen a lot of the Kurosawa filmography, um, knowing what to expect, like look, looking for the telephoto lens, looking for the, the tricks, like the tricks in the sense of the, the, the command he had of the screen. Um, and to me, this is such a, you know, filmalog, as it were, a catalog um, of the emotive sense of the time 
of, of the world that existed. Um, 1957? 1950s, but, but the post-war. Like, we talked about how it's his follow-up feature. Uh, this, you know, he, he directs Seven Samurai. He's given a wider budget by Toho to make Throne of Blood. Um, but immediately preceding uh, Throne of Throne of Blood and in between, um, you know, these two films, he does Record of a Living Being, mm-hmm. which has you... You've seen Record of a Living Being, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Like, I think we talked about this off air, but, like, Record of a Living Being deals with that, that entire, like, fear of the imminent, like, nuclear war coming and that imposition, as it were, of, of kind of just the world that had defined Japan. Well, it's just time. the kind of... And, and, like, this, this, to me, like, Throne of Blood feels <clears> like <throat> such an ultimate response to the Western world invading... Japanese heritage in like in that post World War Two mm-hmm. circumstance. So, I mean, the brilliance I think of 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 the list, and maybe not the brilliance of the list, but like I think the interesting thing about this stuff is that no, like, we could pat ourselves on the back. When I did, when I came to this movie, I didn't I didn't have to think about I didn't think about any of that stuff. Mm. I could give two shits about like where he, like what was the subtext or the overall metaphor of like what he was trying to say about, like, current Japanese culture or his commentary on... Oh, absolutely. Like, Japanese personality and stuff like that. It, for me, it was it, it, um, it was a visceral response to, like, a horribly visceral movie where literally every shot is... You can feel the texture and, like, smell the smells and, like, experience the horror of, like, literally everything that's happening. You know what I mean? Um, and it's only after kind of digging into it a little bit that you can kind of see... Like excuse the pun, like the forest for the trees. That there's much more going on here besides him just trying to like ruin the lives of anyone that like watch this. You know what I mean? But in reality, he was actually probably trying to ruin the lives of anyone that watched it. He was trying to say to like, you know, I mean, they've always called him the most Western in Japan. He's like, you know, semi derided at various points for being like too Western. But he's just like, well, you're yeah, president like Ozu. You're too Western. Yeah, well, Ozu wasn't considered Western at all. Ozu was like the most Japanese filmmaker because he didn't do anything. Because like Kurosawa was doing Western style shots. He was doing you know all these action shots and following I mean, horses Ozu- on on things. And Ozu was doing very traditional Japanese filmmaking, which is everything's contained within the shot. The cameras here, you know, the the blocking is. Is maybe maybe more, maybe more I think of more of of Ozu's influence on Western cinema than I do. But Ozu's, on the, Ozu's influence on Western cinema the, came much later. No, like it comes it comes around the sixties. Like the Mizan scene, like plays a very pivotal role. Yeah, in, but Kurosawa was borrowing from the Western was borrowing from Western films like as early like, as like the franticness. Like, yeah, yeah. Like, there's, there's a reason. There's a reason like why like a John Ford, Akira Kurosawa like friendship kind of blossoms out of. John Ford seeing Throne of Blood. Well, he's. Yeah. I mean, Kurosawa said in an interview, and I didn't bring the book. There's a me, reason but... why, like from last week, like we said, Yojimbo inspires Sergio Leone, a very I mean, Western director, yeah, to Kurosawa basically make a shot by shot remake. His favorite directors are like Frank Capra, um, Ford, um, and there was another guy, too. Eli Roth. No. <laughs> Maybe. He went into the future. He could perceive like, it. Um, He's like, I really love Hostel and Green Inferno. But that's, I mean, he was trying to bring that, he was trying to bring 
He wasn't trying to bring a Western attitude or a Western style to Japanese filmmaking because he even said later that like he perceives himself to be like the most Japanese of Japanese filmmakers because he's delving. He's not using Japanese techniques per se, but he's delving into a deep pool of Japanese culture and history. And that's whereas other Japanese artists weren't. They were depicting modern culture, modern Japanese culture in the traditional style of Japanese film, and he was. He was depicting the foundational aspects of Japanese culture, so the Bushido culture, the samurai culture, the you know um, post Korea, mixing that with like the attitude of the Japanese like post Korea, post World War II, um, where it became you know almost like a like a market revolution in Japan, where they were just like you know what capitalism is awesome, let's and just do that, and that's why I find most important about like to me a film like this is it subjugates western literary history as it were Mm -hmm. you know like Macbeth being one of the more important pieces of western literature like it comes down to Hamlet like Macbeth Beowulf Canterbury Tales Divine Comedy and the Bible in terms of like the western quote unquote pantheon Harold Bloom would not put Macbeth on that list but Continue. I think <laughs> Harold Bloom dead yet? Can we talk about this? I don't know. Gotta be dead now, right? <laughs> it's, it's, it's possible. Count, countdown. Anything is possible. Mark. Um, but he blends that. He he. So his knowledge of Western culture makes him kind of the master to subjugate it to the own world and, and like we're not even speaking about the fact that like this is a Macbeth that is reduced to its component parts you know it's presented in that um, that no theater style mm-hmm. you know that that Ogaku kind of like theater sense of you have you know Izun Yama, uh, Yamada stuck in like a stone face the entire time because she has to be like almost wearing her face as a mask you know you have a, a dimensionlessness to the the shots you have a reduction of moral ambiguity that exists within the text of Macbeth to create a very defined mm-hmm. moral scope of, of right and wrong um, and ultimately you have kind of like the skewing of kind of the authoritarian right, um, right not defined by, or unfortunately modern day right, but an authoritarian proper, um, as it were with Macbeth, is skewed for kind of an acceptance of this archaic nature of violence that, you know, the undoing, um, well, the undoing of, you know, uh, what was uh, of Mifun's character, you know, the Macbeth character is his own people. You know, there's no sort of like righteous justice that's ascribed upon him. It's just, it's just a matter of the next pawn moving in the place. Well, and, that's one of the things that I think the Shakespeare scholars don't really like that kind of have a problem with this movie, don't, or have a problem with any of uh, Akira Kurosawa's adaptations of, of Shakespeare, don't really understand is that he's not doing an adaptation, like a strict adaptation of um, the play. So he's, 
uh, he's taking the the ideas of the play and he's putting them in a completely different context and a completely different visual context. But inherent because of the completely different visual context, it's going to be in a completely different emotional context. And I think that was one of the things that I understood when I first watched it was that like this isn't normal. Like, these aren't normal things. You know what I mean? And I didn't know anything about no theater at the time. I didn't know anything about the masks. I didn't know anything about, like, forest spirits or how, like, the nature of the... The movie, no. Like, the hut that the, the spirit is in is, like, a very classical no theater um, conceit that anyone watching that that knows anything about no theater would be like, oh, that hut represents this thing. The Mugen, yeah. But, like, you know, so I've got... There's a... This very famous um, analysis of Throne of Blood that was a positive analysis of Throne of Blood by this guy, Jay Blumenthal, who essentially says that it's like, the what everyone says, that it's the best adaptation, film adaptation of Shakespeare at the time. I think it was written in like 1966 or something. But this guy that like wrote a response to it, and I forgot, I don't didn't write down his He's name. He's behind the eight ball, man. But he said that like, um, Kurosawa simply simplified a dissonant symphony into like a familiar melody. And what he doesn't understand, what he doesn't mention at all in this, he doesn't mention the word no theater ever once in his response to it. It's that he's extracted all of the, you know, beautiful, wonderful um, language and verbal um, acknowledgement of emotions and verbal, um, you know, narrative the word is but like all the narrative devices he's taken all of them out and and he's saying well that's just makes it it kind of makes it cold and it makes it kind of like a desolate place to be and it doesn't have like the same kind of qualities as the as as the play does but i think the thing that's genius about this which you only understand after having kind of dug into it and i suppose any movie like this rewards being dug into but you can also enjoy it on just like the very simple visceral level of like this is just an amazing movie is that um kurosawa is doing all of those things He's doing all of those things. He's just instead of having like a a, a several page monologue where you know uh, Macbeth's feelings about what has just happened to his wife and like how he's made a bunch of bad decisions and like the tomorrow, 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 and like all this other stuff, he reduces to a a another one in a long series of three prong shots where it's his. It's his sword, it's the helmet, and it's him. It's Washizu just sitting there, and he just yells at himself that he's a fool, that he was a fool. You know what I mean? Yeah. And when you read up about it, like all of those things are, represent, are very representative of something very specific in no theater. So he doesn't have to say it. It's just there. The internal... So one of the, his complaints, one of this... And I'll, and I'll put a link to it on the website, or I'll... Or, or, or I'll you know, maybe we'll compile a list of the things we've talked about in this episode. Um, one of the things oh, he complains about is that he, um, we don't get any of the internal struggle with Lady Macbeth in, in It's this. not necessary. You know what I mean? Because in the mask, the mask that, or the face that she wears is actually the face of a woman in traditional no theater that is um, already going mad. So just contained in the face if you are aware of that stuff, you would have an awareness of how she got from point A to point B. It doesn't need to be, we don't need to see all that stuff. He's taken all that artifice out of it. And it's just this one woman who is matching, who's matching the exact, um, uh, um, is matching 
the formation of the body of the spirit, you know, with like the one knee up, the hands in front of her, um, the ashen pale face to almost ambiguity. Um, she's matching all that stuff because they're all related. It's, but you would know that stuff. Like watching it, if you know no theater, you would know that stuff. You don't need to see this stuff. It's different than it's it's different and, than whatever Shakespeare is saying. Like, oh, you need to have all of this information. All the Kurosawa is giving us all that information on a face. And even He's, even I think even beyond that, um, I think that is even with the necessary notation or, or not notation with the necessary knowledge of no theaters even even needed there. Um, no, I don't this, think so either. This, this is why it's it's important as an adaptation in terms of like a modernization that wouldn't have been available to you know the globe at the time um, of you know his his wife you know reestablished early on you know the coward kind of killing himself in the forbidden room mm-hmm. like and, and the stain of the blood there and the purpose of the stain of the blood being the cowardice you know. And so just having her scene of just staring at the stain itself carries all of that narrative sense of the cowardice of their own act in killing the, the lordship. Mm-hmm. You know, that is, as a, for a Western audience, that's, that's everything that's needed for the out-out damn spot scene is carried in that moment with the establishing shot, like the establishing scene of like, Oh, you know, we're setting it up for the sleep in the forbidden room for our master, you know, because the stain of where, you know, cowardice is, the stain Mm -hmm. of blood of cowardice, you know, to where she's like mesmerized by that stain of blood shows that she is realizing the cowardice of her own actions. And for a Western, like, you know, beyond what you have to say about the knowledge of no theater, for a Western audience, that says it all there. And that just shows, once again, like Kurosawa's control of the visual media to tell a narrative without saying anything and using, you know, 30 seconds of film to do it. Yeah, and I think it's, I mean, one of the things that I I took away originally, which I definitely bring with me, is the sense that um, you understand while you're watching it that there's definitely more going on here. So, you know, just to relate it to the Nightingale, like when I was, or even to relate it to last week's conversation about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, when I was watching it, you're just kind of like, well, is there more to this? I don't know. I'm inclined, I'm, I'm been trained to believe that there's always more. You know what I mean? That there's beyond what we're being shown on screen. If you connect X, Y, and Z dots, you come to a different conclusion. I've been trained by poetry and literature and everything else to believe that that's the case. Um, in a lot of films, that is not the case. You know what I mean? In Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and a little bit in The Nightingale, um, that is not the case. And if you go into, if, but if you go into a classic Akira Kurosawa movie, and maybe all the Akira Kurosawa movies, but specifically Throat of Blood, if you attach one thing to a different thing to a different thing, you are going to get a completely new understanding um, of the movie, of the film. And then you'll also get a new understanding of your relationship to, to the film. I mean, I think I was trained a little bit to look for that stuff by my work um, in that film and literature class um, with Raging Bull, like how, you know, uh, certain camera angles or certain, um, you know, camera tricks like slow motion or certain sound things or whatever um, can be really profound things. So like when she does see that blood and, 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 and uh, where she's going to murder the king, um, she 
very abrupt, it's quiet, and she very abruptly gets up and she does like a very quick dance, like in front of the in front of the bloodstain. And then right after that, we see him come come back with the spirits. Right as he killed, we're led to believe that right after he, right as he was killing her, she she got up and she did this, you know, either ceremonial or just kind of like um, extemporaneous movement. Um, you get you get like a really for the first time you get a, a, um, her her the sound of her robes. You know what I mean? Or it's it matches the sound when she's like walking through that room like a couple scenes before, like this shh shh. Like, is that? It could be a stabbing sound. You know what I mean. Mm-hmm. It could be the sound the un- of sheathing of anything. It, it's it's a depth of it's a depth of reality that exists only in that you can only do in movies. You know what I mean? Um, which you, which one of the things one of the essays I read like you can't do that in, in on the stage. You just can't. Like we can do it now with sound design, but but can't. then those plays are shit. Yeah, it's artifice, yeah. But like in you know when Shakespeare wrote it, he wasn't intending for like, and there's going to be this really intense sound effect here that's going to symbolize, like you know, guys, these, we got to use some dry eyes here. We got to do it. We just got to do it. Um, but he's he's a master at this stuff, so he can. I mean. I don't know. It's, I, I have a lot of trouble talking about Throne of Blood because it like means so much to me. I think the only reason it doesn't appear higher on my list is because it doesn't it doesn't do anything to me like as a person. I didn't take any messages out of Throne of Blood and like adapt them into my own life, except for the fact that movies are way better than like you were originally led to, or can be way deeper than even like the deepest movie that you thought well, you had encountered I think, before I think Throne of Blood exists on a profound term of of looking upon the artists that retake considerable value in like Kurosawa and, and looking at the things they found pivotal the thing, the art that they found to be essential to their own world mm-hmm. and, and built the narrative and, and the, 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 the permanence upon their own world you know like, like Macbeth has that representation of um, righteous justice and, you know, Kurosawa skewed all that and made it something of impermanence, you know, mm-hmm. that Buddhist kind of ideology of impermanence, um, you know, less... Uh, well, yeah, because that castle doesn't like, stay forever. That castle goes away. That's the whole point. Yeah. Or Mephune's kind of like spirit just being stuck there, you know, and like being... You know, and the cycle of violence continuing, like that three-minute-long death scene for him, there, which is just just amazing. amazing. Yeah. yeah. Um, um, but I mean, it, goes, but but like eschewing, finding something that that meant something so profoundly to him, but importing his own experience and importing his own world onto it. I, I think it exists has an important feature. And maybe a pivotal feature for, for anybody in that it's such a, a a telegraphed moment of a master of his craft being so emotionally moved by another piece of art. Well, I think one of the things that we don't take away, well, I think that we forget, maybe we don't forget, maybe I shouldn't be preaching here, is that um, things... 
we understand things to be one way. And I think it's one of the problems that the Shakespeare scholars have had with this movie is that like things Macbeth is representative of itself in a lot of ways. You know what I mean? Hamlet is representative of itself. It's representative of the human condition in the sense that, you know, it it in Harold Bloom's opinion made the human condition. We weren't really people until Shakespeare started writing um plays and then we all became people because we understand how to live. Um it's thank God we're not a YouTube podcast right now. <laughs> it's it's deeper than that. And I um I engage with Hamlet on a deeper level than that. And I engage and Akira Kurosawa engaged with Macbeth on a deeper level than just like, well it's about this one guy who wanted you know, the witches really freaked him out and so he became he killed people and became king, and then he got super freaked out, and then he got his head cut off. You know what I mean? It's like, it's beyond all those things. You can, um, it's universality um, stretches beyond the fact that we all know it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's the fact that these emotions placed in a different context can be... There's a uh, reason why, Mac- why Shakespeare wrote Macbeth, and, you know, Kurosawa reduces the fat of that and skims it all to like get to the emotional need of something like Macbeth. But I love or... I love the idea that he to get to a, a modern emotional truth, he stages it in 16th century Japan with like a um native like through the lens of like a native theater. Mm-hmm. Like exactly. Absolutely. That's that I mean that's it's funny and awesome like simultaneously and it's so deep that it's almost really kind of hard to process and people just kind of and it also, are, who are, it also who's doing this stuff now i don't know it also adds to it uh, a sense of of his his greater understanding of the work than the people who criticize it right would have but i also I mean think about this though i mean so for all of the like the hyper literate things that akira kurosawa is doing in all of his films some of these shots in this movie are incredible incredible like and not just like you know shots for a samurai movie or whatever but like this the image of those trees walking toward yeah, the castle like the closing shot is unbelievable i mean i, I don't even know that i read an article it's like oh it looks like a waterfall descending on the castle it's like i guess it kind of does it also just kind of looks like like a stroke like of a, a brush. burning ocean or something yeah well, and that's in the strokes of a brush. So apparently, that's a thing that he was also very aware of when he was making this movie. Is that he wanted like the blacks and whites, and some of the negative space represented by those blacks and grays and stuff like that to be representative of um, a very specific style of, of Japanese ink and brush art, mm-hmm. um, which is uh, which is unbelievable. But you could also kind of see it. You know what I mean? Like you can kind of see it when like they enter the castle when him and Miki enter the castle. There, we haven't talked at all about Miki. Um, when they enter the castle with the casket, there's a lot to to just un yeah unwrap. When in you this film. when you when he enters the castle, you can like the grain of the wood and like the imperfections in like the brick that like of the walls. You can see all that stuff. The first time we see um, Asaji, Lady Macbeth in parentheses, um, he's out. You know, he's outside. He's walking around that patio. We've like been prim- primarily outside the whole movie. You know what I mean? It's been, it was dark when they were talking to this people. Primarily outside. He walks into the thing. Asaji's just sitting there. Um, you get that really hyper detailed wood grain, like on that wall with that, like glowing lighting. He's walking into an ominous like scenario and he doesn't understand it. And 
but he does under, like he yeah, he understands definitely. it and said but all that stuff is so detailed and so perfect and um so viscerally viscerally realized like it's a it's a it's a pure film experience while also being really intellectually stimulating and captivating and um i don't know i just I, i'm going to say this a lot uh, like over the next 49 weeks that we do this um and plus bonus this, episodes yeah plus bonus episodes like i don't know i'm not 100 sure what my life would be like without this movie i'm not sh- i'm not sure i'm not sure if i end up in the same place if in 2004 i don't see throne of blood like at cutler's and just buy it because it looks awesome yeah, you don't know what tops your list or what's in your top 20 and everything that's most everything that's except for like one movie i think or two movies Everything in my top whatever comes. I think I, I don't think after. I don't think your two or three move too much. No, I'm saying they all they're all movies I saw after Throne of Blood. Well, you're definitely not your two. <laughs> definitely not my two. Oh, I don't have it in front of me, and definitely not my five or six. Well, I don't think your I don't think your three moves that much. I mean, you saw it after, but I don't think it moves that. No, much. I'm just saying I saw it after. Yeah. yeah. So it doesn't matter. Um. But would I have the same relationship? I don't know. I don't know. No, and that's... Pivotal film. Pivotal, pivotal film. Oh, he just mic dropped, guys. And if you want to mic drop on us, you can mic drop. <laughs> your, you can do the hashtag mic drop at twitter.com slash film pivotal. We are in it now. Free, could you imagine if we made that a trending thing? Everyone's just mic- dropping mics. They We're the like first a, one. They think it's like for a charity, though. Like just like filming a like a gif. Drop the mic or gif if you were or gif. It's more. It's, I, I say gif of them dropping a mic, and it's like everyone's like, oh, it's must be for a charity thing. It's like no, it's for really for minor podcasts. Podcasts like the minorest podcast you ever heard of. <laughs> Guys who could spend like an hour, like and a half, talking about a Jennifer Kent follow up movie, and then. A Kurosawa movie that not a lot of people talk about. Why? What else would you spend an hour and a half talking about? Is there something better? Fair point. Fair point. Don't answer that question. Fair point. I had a lot of thoughts. The impending purchase of Denmark. Yeah. Or Greenland. (laughs) No, we're gonna have to buy Denmark in order to own Greenland. Yeah. I wonder how much that'll cost. That won't do anything to our deficit. No. No, we're fine. It's fine. Deficit's imaginary. We can definitely. I'm glad we're still having Louisiana purchase type conversations in this country. Mm-hmm. We're doing great. Imperialism. <laughs> it's and not like, imperialism like if you pay back them cash imperialism. for it. All right. So yeah, you could also, you know, email us about imperialism. At, where's that? Where's that email address? Uh, pivotalfilmpodcast at gmail dot com, or you can go to pivotalfilm.com. And see a list of the films and links to how to subscribe and list of the beers that we drank. And, um, is that a Pokemon on your uh, little thing cover there? It, it was. It was my daughter's um, Pokemon card binder. Uh. But I, I gave it to her. But then my son broke my other binder because he just kicked it for some reason. And so I just took this from her. Does she not have Pokemon cards? She does, but she doesn't really use them. So I just put them in a bag and took her notebook called being a good dad nice if you want to be a good dad you know what you should do <laughs> you should watch a movie um, probably drink multiple beers drink a lot of beers and uh, we'll talk to you next week <laughs>